Well, this morning in our study of Luke 13, our Lord teaches us that if we really want to be free, if we really want to be independent, we must first become dependent upon Him. We must repent and turn to Him. Now, we're going to look at 21 verses this morning, and in these 21 verses, I, I do believe they fit together well. In verses 9 through uh, verses 1 through 9, we're going to see that this independent kind of living, what I call freedom living, uh, begins with repentance and dependence, dependence. And then true repentance, folks, yields fruit. We become productive uh, believers for the kingdom, which is what we sang about. And Bill, I want to thank you for the job you did with the songs this morning because they fit so well with where this passage is taking us. Verses 10 through 17 then, our Lord demonstrates what freedom living looks like in this lifestyle of His and that it's one of demonstrating mercy. It's one of servanthood and it's going to be the kind of service and servanthood that is joyous, folks. This is not drudgery. This is not a duty. This is exciting freedom living, even in the midst of power outages. And then verses 18 through 21, our Lord reminds us that as we live out this lifestyle of freedom living, it establishes or brings about the kingdom of God. Here on earth, present day, in other words, we can experience kingdom living now, but ultimately in the future in heaven. So that's the direction we're going because we have a lot of verses. I wanted to make sure that we are tracking. And I do believe it fits well together. Let's read 1 through 9. Now, there, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Well, what about those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no again, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree and he planted it in his vineyard. And he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Uh, why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, uh, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it. I'll fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then we'll cut it down. Now Luke begins by telling us two stories. Stories of uh, incidents of which in history we're really not quite sure what Luke or Jesus is referring to here. But what we do know is that there was such a social tension going on in the land of Palestine that uh, a revolution was always a, a, a threat to the political policies of that day. Now, the historian Josephus tells us that the Galileans, remember those, that's where Jesus was born. He was considered a Galilean, that those in the northern region of Israel were more susceptible to this idea of revolt. Now, it is speculated by some historians that the incident that Luke is referring to here is at a time when Pilate went about a, a, a construction of a water aqueduct in Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem was in much need of a new water system, a new water supply. And so Pilate promised to not only build the, uh, the, the aqueduct system, but to finance it as well. So why is it then that the Galileans, these Jews, uh, revolted or uh, made a scene regarding this uh, aqueduct system? Well, uh, what Pilate failed to tell them was that the way he was going to finance it was with the temple monies that these dear Galileans, these Jews, had presented in the temple. We're also, uh, historians also tell us that it's thought that many of these Galileans were forced to go to work on this aqueduct system. So what you see is, not only are they forced to work at something they don't want to do, even though they needed it done in their, in their city, but the money that they were giving to God was going to this building project. It would be like you giving your monies here on Sunday, then find out we were uh, using it for something that had nothing to do with the church. Be highly frustrated by that. So it is believed that these Galileans got together and uh, designed a, a small revolt. And that Pilate uh, ordered his soldiers to mingle amongst the crowd, the mob, when this started to take place. Underneath their robes, underneath their cloaks, was their, their Roman uh, armor dress, uh, swords, daggers, whatever. And at a given time, a given signal, they were to dispel this revolt, this mob. Pilate's intentions, they believe, were just to dispel the mob, go home, don't make such a scene, but it got out of control. Uh, several lives were lost, that there was uh, such a, a violent uh, uh, regard on the part of the soldiers towards this crowd that many people were killed. And that's why we believe that Luke says that Pilate mixed their blood with their sacrifices. They had sacrificed in terms of their temple monies and their work and labor towards this project and, and Pilate mixed that in their sacrifices. We don't know for certain exactly, but that is one thing that is speculated. By the way, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 23, the interesting side note regarding this, uh, this history. Pilate, you remember, was the governor of the southern region. Herod, who was one of the sons, the many sons of Herod the Great, the, the younger Herod was a tetrarch of Galilee and some other surrounding regions. And where the scriptures tell us that Herod and Pilate were enemies. They were at enmity. They did not get along. Now look at verse 6 of chapter 23. On hearing this, and this is when Pilate, remember, was interviewing Christ right before the, the, the uh, crucifixion. Uh, Pilate asked uh, the man uh, if, if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, remember Herod is a tetrarch now over Galilee, he sent, Pilate sent Jesus back to Herod, see? And then uh, jump down to verse 11. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. It is believed by some that the reason Herod and Pilate were enemies is because of this water aqueduct situation, this revolt that got out of hand. Pilate's soldiers kills the Galileans, whom Herod is responsible for, being the Tetrarch in the northern region. And therefore, these Galileans begin to complain to Herod. And so Herod now and Pilate are at odds with one another. 
And then we see what brings these two men together eventually is the death and the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, like I said, we don't know for certain about the Galilean incident. We don't know much about the, the, the tower that falls on these 18 uh, people from Salome. What we do know in John 9 about Salome is this is the pool of Salome where Jesus met the blind man. And Jesus was asked, who sinned, this blind man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Now, there's, here's the connection, folks. The Jews are talking about suffering here and how sin relates to suffering. And they wanted to know from Jesus in John 9, did this man sin? Is that why he is suffering the way he is? And what did Jesus say? No. No, this man is blind so that I might perform the works of God and that God might receive the glory. See, the Jews had this notion that whenever a calamity would befall somebody, then that was proof that those people who suffered or died uh, were exceptionally evil people. That uh, for that reason, then, God would allow uh, them to be overtaken by such a disaster as we see here in the opening verses of chapter 13. The Jews had rigidly connected sin and suffering together. They felt that if you were an evil person, then you would suffer according to the the amount of wickedness that your life portrayed. Uh, This was an Old Testament belief and understanding. Uh, The best example of that is in the book of Job. Remember when Job suffered? He lost, what, just about everything except his life. And one of his counselors, Eliphaz, comes to Job and he says, says the following, he says, Job, who being innocent has ever perished? In other words, how would you like one of your best friends to come to you in the midst of your suffering and lay that on you? Job, if you are really innocent, you wouldn't be suffering. If you're really innocent, uh, you won't die. You won't be punished. Well, you can see how this line of thinking is cold, it's cruel, it's heartbreaking, a very heartbreaking doctrine that the Jews had, had built, had established. And our Lord Jesus will have nothing to do with it. And that's why he says in verse 3 and 4, were these people more guilty? Matter of fact, the word there in the NIV that's translated more guilty is the word debt or debtor. Did these people have a greater debt to pay? Well, they may have had debt, but that's not the issue here. Then again in verse 5, I emphatically say no. In other words, our Lord is helping us understand that the suffering that you and I experience, or the lack of suffering, is not indicative of one's goodness or one's badness. It's dangerous, I believe, to attribute human suffering to human sin. You and I know of people, men and women, we've read about it, We see them today that are saints, godly people who suffer greatly. So our Lord wants to understand that that even though in verse 5 we all uh, can be guilty of something, we all can owe a great debt, that the, the debt is too great to pay. None of us can pay it ourselves. So our Lord's point in these first five verses is that unless there is this life changing repentance, now all all people will perish. The fate of the Galileans, the fate of these people that the tower fell on them, uh, was not determined by their sin. Uh, Neither were they better nor worse than the next person, is what our Lord is saying. 
But what our Lord really wants us to understand here is the urgency of repentance. The urgency of the good news and why we need to respond to it. Unless there is repentance, people will perish. So our Lord demonstrates that. He illustrates that with this parable of the fig tree. I believe that there are are really three uh, fairly straightforward lessons. The first one is the fig tree in Scripture uh, often was a symbol for the nation of Israel. We're told in Micah 7 that the fig tree represents Israel. We're told again in uh, Hosea 9. Isaiah 5 speaks of the vine and the vineyard as representing the nation of Israel. So our Lord wants these listeners to understand as they raise this question of suffering and sin, that you were chosen as God's people. And that's why the the, the symbol of the fig tree is used. Not only are you chosen as God's people, but now you have a great responsibility, just like a fig tree, to produce fruit. It was, in in our Lord's day, as well as in our present day, customary uh, to plant a fig tree in Palestine in one's vineyard. You plant several trees, but a fig tree was very popular. And there was this three-year probationary period, and that's why our Lord, I believe, in the parable uses the term three here. Three years in which this fig tree should produce fruit. But after three years, if it is still fruitless, he says, get the axe and cut it down. So we see our Lord, I believe, warning the nation of Israel that, that if a tree like a nation, draws strength and sustenance from the soil, but never gives back. It only exhausts the soil. It wears the soil out. It takes up space, but never produces what it's meant to produce. And this, I believe, folks, is precisely the sin of Israel. They were given this great privilege and responsibility to be life givers, fruit bearers to other nations, to other peoples, and they forfeited it. They lacked uh, the ability to heed these words. Several years, or, uh, earlier on this, this, this year, my wife and I decided to take a look at our budget. And we decided we need to cut back on some things. Got a, my oldest son is 21, last year of college, and, and trying to help him get through school. And, and so one of the things that I decided we could cut out was the, the, the fertilization of our lawn. We, uh, we maintain it by watering, mowing, you know, doing all that stuff. But for, for several years, I've had people come, professionals come, and fertilize my grass and the trees. And, and they do a wonderful job. We have this luscious, we had this luscious green yard. <laughs> I said, Judy, no problem. Let me run down to Costco, get a $10 bag of fertilizer. I can do this. So I go down and, and I borrow a friend's, one of those spreaders. They call them easy spreaders. I don't know where they ever got the word easy spreader. But... Uh, I poured the, the fertilizer into the, the bin, and I began to spread this fertilizer. I got about halfway done with my yard, and I think, Dennis, you have got to be more faithful about going to the gym. I mean, I am sweating like a dog, and this thing is so hard to push, and I'm saying, I don't remember this being that hard. And so I'm about 80% done with my yard, and I thought, this something's not right. So I finally jiggle this handle some more, and something breaks loose opens up and it had been caught in the handle somehow and now when I start to push the spreader guess what the, the wheels roll freely and the fertilizer begins to come out but my problem is now I've done 80% of the yard I have not a clue 
what I've done and what I haven't done. You know, I try to look and okay, the you know tire patterns, but I don't know how much has really come out because the spreader wasn't working. So I pour the remainder of the bag in and I figure, okay, I'll try to remember and go back over my yard. Well, I do this and then I wait for the rains to come, and I sprinkle my yard. Now, folks, let me tell you what I've got. I've got beautiful rows of green, luscious grass here. <laughs> then over here, right next to it, I've got this kind of spindly, dry. A brown, yellowish tinted grass that doesn't grow. I've even got a section in the backyard that looks like a triangle. I mean, like somebody decorated my backyard with this brown stuff. Then I got a circle that's very green and luscious. <laughs> my boys think it's funny. They say, Dad, if you can come up with a grass that grows, uh, that, that looks as good as this green stuff, but grows like this brown stuff, you'll have what a marketing uh, edge on fertilizers. Well, the point is, if I invite you over to my house for a barbecue and you walk into my backyard in your shorts and your bare feet and we get ready to sit down on that green grass, which grass are you going to sit in? The long, green, luscious grass that tickles your toes, folks. See, that grass is doing what it was meant to do. It's growing. It's not taking up space like the other sections of my lawn. And that's what the nation of Israel was called to do. Not to just exhaust the soil but, and not to just take up space, but to yield this harvest, this good news of what God has for everyone. Now, I believe that this picture of the axe cutting down the tree... Uh, because I, the fig tree represents Israel, I believe that what our Lord is saying here is that he foresaw and, and he foretold the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Sobering thought, isn't it? Well, how does that relate to us today? Well, I believe that as a, as a nation, as a church, and even as individuals, although the fig tree, I think, specifically refers to the nation here, that we need to examine our hearts. We need to examine uh, are we repentant? Have we returned to God as He challenges us to? Are we living free lives in Christ or are we taking up space? Are we exhausting the soil and not giving back what God intended us to be? The parable also teaches a second thing, and that is that the gospel, the good news of this repentance is uh, second chances. He's a God of second chances. Like I said, even though this symbol of the fig tree represents Israel, I think that the, the secondary lesson here is for the individual believer, the individual person. Uh, our God gives us second, third, fourth chances. We, we, uh, we heard testimony of that this morning. Thank you, God, for what you have done in my life, the way you have saved my marriage or worked in my children's lives, or the way you have given me a second chance, maybe in the midst of a, a marriage that didn't go so well. God's patience is infinite. His mercy is boundless towards the penitent. Those of us that would turn to Him. It is always our Lord's way to give men and women second chances. Chance after chance, when we fall, we rise again and He's there to greet us. I was reflecting this past week with regards to this passage about all the men and women in the Scriptures who were given second, third, and gazillion chances and I thought of people like Peter, who denied Christ. I thought of Mark, who left Paul in the midst of a journey. I thought of Paul, who tried to squelch the church by putting to death believers. I thought of Abraham, who said, 
She's not my wife. She's my sister. I thought of Moses. Uh, Don't send me, Lord. Uh, The list goes on. David, Sarah, Hannah, Tamar. What a wonderful story about Tamar and Judah. You remember the story. Tamar is given a husband and he dies. He's evil. Next, so the brother takes over and and he's evil and God takes his life and, and so on and so forth. And there was not a man for Tamar and Judah would not give his fourth son to Tamar because he was afraid that he too would die. But God gave Tamar a second chance. And aren't you glad he did? Because it was through the line of Tamar that our son and Lord and Savior Jesus Christ came. He's a God of second chances. But there is a third and final lesson, and that is that the parable makes it quite clear that there comes a time uh, when the end comes for second chances. If we refuse chance after chance, if God's appeal, if uh, God's challenge comes again and again to a vain uh, heart, to a vain ear, the day will come when not will God... uh, shut the door, but when we by our choice, by our own decision, we'll we'll slam the door shut on Him. And I would encourage you this morning, if you have come to call, or maybe this is the first time for you, and this is either old news or new news, that you would take seriously this parable. Our Lord says, don't wait a day longer. The axe may be ready to fall. You see, people, you were born to be born again. You were born to live a life in all of its fullness. You were born to be planted in the garden of God and to yield fruit. You were born to have purpose in that garden. You were born to be a filler-upper rather than a drainer, rather than somebody who just sucks the life like the fig tree did from the soil but never gives back. The word repent means to change one's mind, to turn around, to go a different direction. Would you consider that this morning? Would you begin to follow God rather than your own direction? Will you begin to to trust God rather than trust your own will and course of life? Repentance is a prerequisite uh, for salvation. Repentance is a prerequisite for freedom living if you really want to have independence. Now, I mentioned earlier that true repentance then leads to merciful living. Uh, The lifestyle that Jesus himself demonstrated, and that's why the following verses 10 through 17 give us such a beautiful picture of that. Let's read on. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. Uh, I take that to mean that Satan was behind this debilitating physical um, defect that this poor woman had to endure. Somehow, he, uh, this demon uh, did something to her body in such a way that uh, caused her to be crippled. Notice it says she was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. By the way, uh, this is only one of three times in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus initiates uh, this, this act of mercy. Now, he, he does this many times before, but often people bring folks to him, don't they? For healing, for casting out of demons. 
But here our Lord is initiating this act of mercy because he saw her need. Then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. We sang about that earlier, that we praise God for all of the things that he has done. Now notice in verse 14, Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for eighteen long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her. When he said this, all his op- opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted, delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. I want to draw our attention just to three things, uh, two things here in this section. First of all, when we repent, when we uh, bear fruit, we become merciful people rather than self-seeking, self-righteous, rule-ridden regulators. Now, I was in a a doctor's office for some knee therapy this last winter. It was right in the height of Bronco football mania. And I was uh, sitting there when a group of young college students came in. I could tell by the way they were dressed. I could tell by their conversation that these were, and by their size, that these were BSU football players. And I uh, couldn't help but eavesdrop. I think they were coming up against a big game, probably the Vandal game. And they said, we are going to regulate the Vandals. In other words, we are going to take charge and whip their tails. Uh, I don't know if you've heard this term in our youth culture, but it's used often. I first heard it in a, in a video movie called Young Guns about Billy the Kid or Jesse James. I can't remember. And they used that term back in the old Wild West days of regulating they were called the regulators for law and order. So the phrase, it's time to regulate, can be used in a, in a well-meaning sense. But more often we see it used in the youth culture to demonstrate that we're going to take charge. We're going to take control. Uh, we're going to regulate somebody or something. And it's interesting that the synagogue president, president in this story, he wanted to regulate the system. He wanted to regulate people. He even wanted to regulate the son of the living God. How foolish of him. This idea of regulating our lives, the system, or Jesus Christ, is what Don Hudson, the co-author of the book, The Silence of Adam, he calls it recipe theology. For some of you that have read the book. Recipe theology says that if we follow a particular recipe and and put the right ingredients in our lives, that our lives will turn out a certain way. If we only go to church this many times, if we study this scripture, if we do this and that. Well, recipe theology may work well in well-lit kitchens, folks, but it does not work well in dark, chaotic worlds where people are... uh, especially people like this woman, are attacked uh, by the spiritual forces of evil and need answers that don't come from recipe theologies. They can't be regulated. And that's the beauty of how our Lord initiates and steps into this woman's life and demonstrates mercy. 
You see, mercy theology, grace theology works in dark, chaotic worlds. Jesus knew what this woman was suffering from. He knew that she was suffering at the hand of Satan, that her suffering was not linked to her goodness or badness, her sinfulness. You see, mercy is like that. Mercy seeks the welfare of other people at the expense of our own time, sometimes our own money, our own agendas, our own programs, our own rules and regulations. You see, mercy doesn't impose, but mercy invites people to healing relationships with one another and most of all with God. Mercy uh, doesn't regulate, but mercy rejuvenates. It brings life to this woman who now could be the fig-producing tree that she was meant to be. Mercy doesn't repel push away or repulse people. But mercy, notice verse 17 says, people were delighted in what they saw Jesus do to this woman. And they praised God for it. I was at uh, Nick and Laura Armstrong's going away party last week and I saw a young guy about my age, a single guy. And uh, I, I walked up to him. I couldn't quite figure out why Harry was at this going away party because of the age difference, uh, didn't know how he was connected to the Armstrongs. So I went up to him and said, Harry, what are you doing here? What, why did you come to say goodbye to the Armstrongs? Mr. Nosy. And uh, Harry said, well, Dennis, you'll, you'll never believe this, but I, I've been going about two years ago. I remember two years ago was when we brought Nick and Laura home from Indonesia, and then Nick was part of our staff the last two years helping with missions. And, and Harry said, well, two years ago, Dennis, when I started attending Cole for the first two months, uh, nobody really ever greeted me. And I went, my heart just sunk. Ouch. But then he said, Dennis, a, a wonderful thing happened. I was walking along the green belt one day, and, and along came this person walking uh, towards me. This beautiful, delightful Christian woman by the name of Laura Armstrong. And Laura recognized him and said, You know, I have seen you around Cole. My name's Laura Armstrong. And, she, and Harry said, Dennis, that's why I'm here today, because Laura Armstrong reached out and, and demonstrated a, an act of mercy and love, of friendship. Uh, kind of a scary thing to do in the 90s, a young woman, you know, uh, extending a, a welcome hand to this single fellow. But that's the kind of person Jesus is, that's the kind of person Laura Armstrong's Laura Armstrong desires to be, and that's what we are called to be. People that live a lifestyle of offering mercy. The second thing our Lord demonstrates is this, this attitude of joyous servanthood. In the midst of a, a, a religious man who says, don't heal her today, you've got six other days to do it, our Lord goes ahead and, and reaches out and touches her. You see, I believe Jesus had fun ministering to people. To our Lord, ministry was not drudgery. It was not a duty, folks. It was a hoot. Jesus loved to serve folks. Why? Well, because he understood that serving other people sets people free from the bondage that Satan desires to place on people just as, as Satan had done in this woman's life. 
I believe that there are two kinds of peoples in this, in this world. I, I mentioned it earlier. There are filler-uppers and there are drainers. There are people out there that go around filling up your tank all the time. And, and I bump into them and I just feel like a new man when I, I run into those folks. And then there are drainers. Those are the kind of people like this fig tree that just kind of suck the soil dry. They never give back. Well, you know, in one sense, before we came to Christ, we were all drainers. You and I entered uh, this life really at the peril of somebody else's life, our mother's. You and I are in debt to somebody out there that nourished us when we could not care for ourselves. So we start out as drainers. But what is it that our Lord calls us to? He calls us to be filler-uppers. And Jesus is the greatest filler-upper that I know. Because we're on this Independence Day theme this morning, I thought of Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln understood exactly this idea of joyous servanthood. Listen to what he said. Die when I may, I want it said of me that I plucked a weed and planted a flower wherever I thought a flower would grow. You and I, because the Spirit of God resides in us, are to be planting flowers in God's garden. We are to be filler-uppers. Well, finally, we see that if repentance sets us free, and this freedom living demonstrates mercy and, and, and joyous servanthood, then it brings about this kingdom of God. Notice verses 18 through 21. Then Jesus asked, What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? Well, it is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air perched in its branches. Again, he said, What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. In closing, I want to just mention three very simple I believe, principles from this last section. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, is like this mustard seed. Uh, it starts, it's, it's little, it starts small. And he says that the reality is that that's how the kingdom of God works in our lives. And it started from this humble servant king, this man named Jesus, who demonstrated mercy and love and kindness and forgiveness. And that's how it's growing. It started very small with Jesus and 12 others. Then the 12 to the 70. And just kept multiplying and multiplying. And that's why you're here this morning. Because somebody, some small seed out there planted the seed of God's love. And you responded to it. Uh, don't let the appearance of smallness fool you. Because God's got a great kingdom that he's working on here. In the east, this mustard seed that our Lord mentions here uh, was not really a garden herb as we think of it, but really was a, a plant, uh, a field plant that they would grow in a, in a large field. Uh, we're told uh, that this, this mustard seed could grow to 8, 10, as much as 12 feet tall. That the, the limbs then of this mustard seed were strong enough that birds could actually build nests that they could perch on and had the strength to sustain them. So, the, the principle that our Lord, I think, is trying to draw for us, the picture that He's drawing for us here, is that is how the kingdom of God grows, like this mustard seed. Very small, but it's, it's gaining in momentum. It's, it's getting larger all the time. Thirty years uh, after our Lord's death, 
thousands of souls through, throughout the known countries at that time found safe haven and rest in churches like this. Uh, at Pentecost, 3,000 souls were giving their lives to Christ because of Peter's preaching. Well, not only is there outward growth, but secondly, we learn that there is inward security and peace from this little parable. Notice verse 9b, it says that all the birds of the, the air perched in its branches. In other words, there's inward security and peace. Uh, in Christ, kingdom living or freedom living offers us rest. He offers us peace and security. If you have the picture of this, the limbs of a tree supporting birds, would you carry that a step further and, and picture the limbs, the arms of God? Wrapping you and I around in security and in safety and peace. And finally, our Lord says in verse 20 that the, the, this picture of the yeast and how it gets into the whole dough, uh, that's really a description of the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in individual lives. And also, I believe, it's a picture of, of the tr transforming power that the kingdom of God has throughout the world. I... Uh, We've had a tradition, I shared this with the evening service a few weeks back, but I, we have a tradition in our family where I get up occasionally on a Saturday morning and I have this sourdough pancake recipe. And I keep this little sourdough leaven in a jar in the refrigerator. And you close the door, it's dark, it's cool, it's damp, and you don't see much going on in there. Well, we had some folks visiting us for the 4th, and I decided I'd mix up a great big batch of sourdough pancakes. So what you do is, and ladies, you know this, the night before you take that sourdough or that leaven and you mix it with flour and some warm water. I put about six cups of flour. We're big eaters in our family. I put six cups of flour in there and uh, went to bed. Well, my wife was the first one in the kitchen the other day and I heard this exclamation. Oh my goodness! What happened? <laughs> well, I go out and, and this sourdough leavening process has worked overnight like it's supposed to but it has bubbled up beyond the rim of the bowl and it has overflowed and it covered a counter about half the size and it's just flowing out all over the counter you see until the leaven got into the flour it was powerless to change the flour the flour had no power uh, until the leaven got in it folks See, you and I will never change on the outside. You and I can never change the world. We can never change men and women on the outside because it takes the Spirit of God to invade a woman's, a man's heart. And that leavening process takes place, that transforming power. We serve a big God. We serve a God who demonstrates a lifestyle of merciful giving. And it all begins with this prerequisite called repentance. Where is your heart this morning? If you're here and this is brand new news to you or old news, but you have never responded. Are you like the fig tree? The axe is doomed to fall. I would encourage you to take our Lord's words seriously. You were born to be born again. Never forget that. And if you are here as a believer, maybe you've been not yielding the fruit that you see God is calling you to this morning, begin to let that work of the Spirit invade your soul, your heart, 
begin to serve, become a delight to those who you touch. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your straightforward words of repentance. That your desire is to make us like fig trees planted in a garden in your vineyard. Lord, help us repent as a nation, as a church, as individuals. Begin to produce in us that transforming power, Lord, that is like this yeast, is like this little small mustard seed. That as we give and serve and love as, as your Savior, as your Lord, as your Son did, Jesus, that we would change, that we would minister to a hurting world, that we would fully understand what freedom living, what independence is all about. In Christ's name, amen.